this episode of We Believe You, there is a brief description of a sexual assault. Hey, welcome to We Believe You. My name is Lauren, and I'll introduce myself in a few minutes. In this episode, I'll be talking about military sexual trauma, which is the terminology used to describe experiences of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape in the United States military, as well as interpersonal and relationship violence among service members. I'll share information about the prevalence of military sexual trauma and interpersonal violence, including who is most affected and some general information about how the military addresses both MST and IPV. From there, you'll listen in on a conversation between myself and Alistair, a student survivor and veteran, and Dr. Ben Schrader, the Director of Adult Learner and Veteran Services at CSU. Before I get into the details for this topic, let me tell you a bit about myself. As I said, my name is Lauren, and I use she, her, and hers pronouns, and I'm a confidential victim advocate at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center here at CSU. A bit about my identities. I'm a white, pansexual, cisgender woman, and I'm partnered to a cisgender man. I'm mom to two little kiddos who I'm attempting to raise as decent humans, and I'm really passionate about social justice, intersectional feminism, and imagining a better world for folks who hold marginalized identities. I studied human development and family studies and student affairs, which just means I'm trained to work with college students on college campuses. Before taking on my master's degree, I was a mental health case manager in a pretty small rural community, working with patients who were struggling with mental health issues. Before that, I did medical case management for people living with HIV in Northern Colorado. In that role, I also did HIV prevention activities like educational presentations, HIV testing, and giving out safer injection supplies to folks who inject drugs. My personal and professional experiences have led me to this work, and I'm really glad to be here with you. Now let's get into the topic of military sexual trauma and IPV. First, keep in mind that the information we're talking about in this episode focuses entirely on sexual and interpersonal violence within the United States military, which consists of the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Reserve Units, and Space Force, which is a real thing as of December 2019. This is a big topic with a lot of information to share within the context of the U.S. military, and we won't address military sexual trauma, or MST, or IPV in other parts of the world. Needless to say, military sexual trauma and IPV are prevalent internationally. Military units have long been associated with hypermasculinity and aggression in response to the nature of the work, and these traits have historically precipitated sexual and interpersonal violence. Even though the information we'll discuss is centered on U.S. military branches, know that it's not unique to the U.S. military. I want to start with definitions. They can be a bit dry, but the military has its own lingo and culture. Knowing the terminology can help to really get these issues. I'll start with military sexual trauma, or MST, which is formally defined by the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ, as physical assault of a sexual nature, battery of a sexual nature, or sexual harassment that occurred while a veteran was serving on active duty or active duty for training. This definition goes on to define sexual harassment as repeated, unsolicited verbal or physical contact of a sexual nature, which is threatening in character. Examples of military sexual trauma could include instances when a service member is pressured into sexual activities by use of threats if they don't cooperate, or with the suggestion that they could be promoted more quickly or receive better treatment by complying. Drug-facilitated sexual assault is included in this definition, as well as the use of any physical force to initiate or engage in sex. Further, unwanted sexual touching, grabbing, making offensive or threatening remarks about a person's body, or unwelcome sexual advances are all included as MST. 
When we think about this list, a lot of behaviors fall under the definition of military sexual trauma. I'm glad that the military uses a broad definition because this might mean that service members and veterans could seek support for a breadth of traumatic experiences. However, just like in the civilian world, there are significant issues with reporting or getting access to support services. We'll get into that information soon. The MST definition covers a lot of ground when it comes to defining violence of a sexual nature, and the Department of Defense makes a clear distinction by separately defining IPV, because without question, relationship and dating violence happens among service members, veterans, and their partners. The Department of Defense breaks down interpersonal violence into two separate and distinct categories, domestic violence and domestic abuse, but they didn't always differentiate between the two. Historically, domestic violence charges would have been prosecuted the same as assault charges, similar to the charge that would be applied if a service member punched somebody at a bar. In 2019, Congress amended the UCMJ to specifically address domestic violence offenses, which was an important acknowledgement by lawmakers to recognize domestic violence as a unique and permeating form of violence that is different from assault. With that in mind, domestic violence in the military is defined as an offense with legal consequences under state laws and the UCMJ. Domestic abuse refers to a pattern of abusive behavior. With some clarity about definitions, I'm going to shift gears a bit and look at who is most affected by MST and IPV. So let's talk about prevalence based on a few identities, starting with gender. Most sources indicate that approximately one in three women and one in 50 men respond yes when they're screened for military sexual trauma. Data about transgender service members is difficult to come by, in part because data about trans folks is not always separated out from information about the broader queer community. And in some cases, a person wouldn't even have the option of selecting transgender as an identity on reporting forms. Although the data is limited for trans military service members, one small study found that nearly 84% of trans-identifying service members reported experiencing sexual harassment 30% experienced stalking, and 30% experienced sexual assault while enlisted. More detailed or accurate data about trans service members is unavailable, likely because the military prohibited trans folks from enlisting until June 2016, when the ban on transgender service members was repealed. The ban was reinstated in July 2017, and then overturned once more in January 2021. I find these policy changes to be dizzying, discriminatory, and impossible to keep up with, and I'm sure I'm not alone in those feelings. These changes have definitely affected the availability of data about the experiences of trans service members and veterans as it relates to military sexual trauma. Next, I want to break down the numbers based on sexual orientation. One study found that nearly 81% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual service members experienced sexual harassment, 39% experienced stalking, and 26% experienced sexual assault. And there seems to be a heightened risk of experiencing sexual harassment for men in the queer community, but not necessarily for queer women service members, at least based on the research. Like the numbers for transgender service members, legal decisions have limited the availability of data regarding military sexual trauma among queer service members, and the military has a history of silencing and closeting gay service members. One prominent example is Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was a discriminatory policy from the Clinton era that was intended to provide an avenue for queer folks to serve in the military, but ultimately decreased safety and prevented service members from being openly queer. Under this particular policy, service members that outed themselves or were outed by others risked being discharged from the military because of their sexuality. 
When Don't Ask, Don't Tell was overturned in September 2011, service members could share about their sexuality openly, according to the UCMJ. However, as we know, changing the laws didn't necessarily change the culture in the military surrounding sexuality. Homophobia isn't uncommon, and queer service members may still feel a sense of distrust when they think about sharing their identities with peers or within their line of command. Queer service members feel that by sharing their sexuality, they could become the target of sexual harassment or sexual assault, and that fear is legitimate and valid. While the military has codes and laws in place that make discrimination unlawful, those codes are not always honored by all service members. Okay, so we've talked a bit about rates of MST among a few different populations, but you might be wondering about the prevalence of IPV in the military. The data about IPV is extremely difficult to come by. From 2015 to 2019, the Department of Defense reported more than 40,000 cases of IPV, with 74% of those reported as physical abuse. But an external group focused on accountability found that many branches of the military have not kept up-to-date or complete records about relationship violence. Many, many recommendations have been put forward to address these issues, and it remains to be seen if more accurate data will become available in the coming years. So in the last few minutes, we did a deeper dive into the ways gender and sexual identities are connected to the prevalence of MST and IPV, but we didn't cover the many other identities that we know experience higher rates of assault and interpersonal violence within and outside of the military, such as disability status, race, or immigration status. The data is not comprehensive as it relates to these identities, and there are calls for more transparency about service member experiences from a more intersectional lens. I'd like to now invite in Alistair and Ben. Thank you both so much for joining me. First, we like to invite our guests to share about their salient identities. Would you each be comfortable sharing a bit about yourselves? Yes, hi, my name is Alistair. I am a white, mostly European, slightly Central Asian, gay trans man, woo! And I am a veteran of the Air Force, and I am also a survivor of MST and IPV. Thanks, Alistair. My name is Ben Schrader. I am a white cisgender male. I served in the U.S. military from 2001 to 2005, and now I am here at CSU. Thank you both for being here with us today. So based on the years you each served and the identities you hold, you probably had pretty different experiences within the military. So with that context in mind, can you share a little bit about your experience with military culture especially as it relates to the prevalence of military sexual trauma and interpersonal violence. Ben, if you want to start, because uh, you served earlier than I did. Sure, yeah. I served in 2001 to 2005, as I said earlier, and this was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So the culture was, you know, very closeted. Folks didn't speak about those types of things. I did have some friends who did identify as gay who, you know, came out to me during that time, but that was because they felt safe around me. Um, they obviously didn't come out to everybody. Thinking about the culture as well, I was in an all-male unit. I was a cavalry scout, uh, so in conventional warfare, we'd go out in front of everybody, see what's going on. And at that time, only men were allowed into that job. And so I was in an all-male unit. I was in a tank battalion as a scout. On our larger base in Germany, there were women, but it was mostly combat battalions there. So there was very few of those interactions within the workplace setting. Uh, when we got to Iraq, we had two women who were assigned to us, which were medics. Our leadership 
threatened us all very heavily with uh, how we treated or even looked at the two women that were on our base, right? Knowing this kind of culture of masculinity and, you know, violence that is very prevalent within the U.S. military. For sure. Yeah. I served from 2009 to 2016. So Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed pretty much right at the end of my service. And actually, I was deployed in Djibouti, Africa, and signing letters to Congress, being like, can we, can we please serve now? Thank you very much. But yes, there wasn't as much silence, I think, as your experience, Ben, maybe because I, I am queer. So coming through, it's like, you got to find your group of safety. And it just so happened that my next door neighbor when I was first stationed was a lesbian. So and coming in with, I want to say, assigned female at birth experience. So I was in an all-female unit starting out. And it's interesting, like you say women, and it's like in the military, the term is female. You know, don't look at the females, that kind of thing. So it was different, but also there was definitely that struggle of I'm queer, but also I'm extra queer because I didn't figure out I was trans until the end. So it's like, yay, we got most of the way done with don't ask, don't tell, but there's still the T on the LGBT that's like, hello, can we please, can we please do this? So right at the end, Obama was leaving and Trump was about to be elected. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to go to Colorado and go to school. So that was really kind of my experience of quiet under the radar trying to survive, I guess. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing a little bit about kind of what the culture of the military was like. And I think the pieces that you both talked about address gender and how that might contribute to a culture of violence against service members. So as we think about that, we know that accessing support for someone who's experienced military sexual trauma or interpersonal violence can be extremely difficult in the civilian world. So what are some of the barriers that you know about or you experienced or you've seen others experience that might be unique to military culture? So I guess specifically for me... As I said, I'm a survivor of MST while I was deployed and I was assaulted by another service member. And the barrier to getting help was we had a room together with a pair of lesbians. I felt that if I made a report or said anything that they would be witnesses and they would have to explain what they were doing together. So that was definitely a barrier, I think, for me. And even coming back, it was like, I didn't want to make a report I just wanted to talk to somebody about it. I was under the influence of alcohol when it happened also. So there was, again, that kind of self-blaming of like, I drink a bottle of vodka. Why did I do that? Instead of asking, why did he do that? When obviously I couldn't even stand up. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Alistair. So I think one of the barriers, and this goes back to the culture piece, thinking about the way in which the military is structured is very much around this identity of masculinity. If you look at it kind of like a pyramid, in this pyramid, at the top, you have the most elite soldiers, right? The combat soldiers. And that's like 40% of the military, whereas the rest of the 60% are support for the combat arms. And there's this constant competition to emulate the top part of that pyramid. And that is where violence is born. Violence is taught specifically for that top of that pyramid because that is their job, go out and kill. And so there's this constant ideation of this group of people and 
you see this competition to be as violent as possible, to be as tough and strong as possible. So there's just this constant rat race towards the top of this violent pyramid. So I think that cultural piece is what really this is based off of. The whole point of military training is to recreate you into this soldier. But a lot of people aren't cut out for that kind of training, that kind of processing. And, you know, I would argue that no one really is, but it's a process of brainwashing that's constantly happening. So that's where this structure is really rooted in. Now, the other huge barrier that this is really tied to goes back to how in which these cases are seen. You know, there are no external investigators. All this work is done within the units. So if somebody is being investigated, they're being investigated by their commander. And a lot of times he will be buddies with someone. He has to investigate his friends or his colleagues. And his promotions are based upon how many incidents that person has. So a lot of times these get swept under the rug and or minimized because no one wants to have a command that was full of sexual violence. This is a huge barrier and everybody within the military absolutely knows it. So they don't ever want to report these things. And now there has been some legislation that has been aimed at trying to fix this, but the military is very resistant and they constantly push the congressional members that they work with not to pass something like this. Alistair, do you have pieces you would want to add? Yes, actually, there was one point growing up, I wanted to join special forces and being assigned female at birth, that wasn't allowed. Specifically, the arguments I heard was if men are going through the field and they see a woman wounded, they're going to stop and not do their mission. And this was also when the Jessica Lynch issue was going on. She was, um, she was a POW in Iraq, I believe, and it was hugely nationalized of we have to go and save her. So I guess there's this kind of double-sided idea of, you know, do we allow women on the battlefield? And she was support, I believe, also. It's this double standard that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, the culture, like you said, Ben, tries to remove the training and the culture tries to remove as much individuality as possible so that people can achieve the mission of the U.S. military, which ultimately is violence. And then I have an expectation people not be harmed who are a part of the military, but we've now trained everybody to be violent. And so I hear like how complicated it is to try to say, be violent here for the good of the country, but don't be violent here for the sake of your individual relationships or the people that you're with. And then I hear from you, Alistair, too, like how complicated the culture around a gender binary is mm -hmm. and how much that adds to a culture of violence against folks. And we know it's not just women and trans folks who experience violence in the military. We know that men also experience military sexual trauma, interpersonal violence within the military. I think you both talked about some of the barriers that might prevent somebody from reporting military sexual trauma, interpersonal violence while they're enlisted. I wonder if you can talk about maybe some of the barriers for folks once they become veterans or once they're no longer active duty military members. So this actually starts before they get out, right? Another huge stigma 
is around mental health. There is very little support within the military. Now, I, I believe they are trying to improve this, but there's still a huge stigma around trying to get mental health counseling, right? If you are in a certain job, if you are having mental health issues, they can take away your security clearance and then all of a sudden you don't have a job, right? This comes in a number of ways that are very stigmatizing, very problematic. Like one of the terms is PTSD pussy. It's, you know, one of those things that if you are showing any kind of stress or you go see a counselor, that's what you're going to be called. So that starts in the military. And then when you get out, those things carry with you. It is hard to ask for help. It is hard to go to the VA. And I know a lot of veterans who are afraid to take those steps because they think there's something wrong with them if they ask for help. My experience, luckily, there was more acceptance of PTSD trauma. Now, on the other side, when it comes to sexual trauma, I didn't say a word when I was deployed because I still had like three months to be there. And I was like, I cannot, I can't deal with this. I come back, I get training as a sexual assault victim advocate to try and, I guess, deal with my pain in a way to help others. And then when I was getting out and tried to make a report, they are like, why did you wait until now? Because this is the first time I could talk about it? I don't know. And even, again, trying to make a report to the VA three years later, he's like, well, I mean, you said you wanted to at one point, so that's consent. It's like, I had a bottle of vodka in me. Yeah. And I never, ever intended to sleep with him. Right. Doesn't matter. Right. So there, I guess, is a big stipulation. And I'm currently going through a fight to claim PTSD right now. It just sounds like it's really an uphill battle. And then when you're first thinking about potentially reporting or seeking support, then to be shamed and stigmatized for the experiences you had, as if you shouldn't be suffering from those experiences. And then to have to, it sounds like, be re-victimized. Yeah, it's very uh, invalidating and very frustrating. So before we kind of wrap up our conversation, I do want to check with both of you to see if there are other pieces about barriers that you would want to share that might be helpful for our listeners to know about. Yeah. So I think another thing that a lot of people don't realize and don't think about is issues like hazing. Issues of hazing are often very highly used within the military as a form of creating that conformity. A lot of times that comes through, through sexual violence. You know, I witnessed a bunch of guys chase down a person they didn't like and, you know, stick a piece of fruit in his butt. And this was a form of hazing, trying to get this person to stop acting the way they were acting. And it was about power. As we know, when it comes to rape and sexual violence, a lot of times it's not about the sex. It is about power. And within the military, it is the ultimate power system, right? It is based on power. And so it's not a surprise that sexual violence is very common within the military. So that and then the VA, right? Like I think the VA is a wonderful system, but they're always, you know, two steps behind with their hand tied behind their back. Once they start getting more of these mechanisms in place that the rest of the world has, 
um, we can start addressing these issues uh, more holistically, right? It's a matter of getting the system on par. It is a great system, but more people need to be able to trust that it's reliable. One more thing about the VA. They uh, also do not cover trans surgeries. They only cover hormone therapy, but any kind of surgery is disbarred via Congress. And again, like you said, it's about power. I guess also to touch on one thing, as a survivor of IPV, coming back from having experienced sexual trauma, my then-husband, I guess, might have blamed me for the situation because he became very abusive after the fact. While he never hit me, he was always mentally and emotionally abusive, and he would hit my dog. It takes different forms that people may not assume from the surface. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important to, I think I said it earlier, but like how permeating the issues are and how complicated it makes it to be able to talk about it, to report it, to get out of a situation where somebody is unsafe because the system that Ben is talking about is not there to support people. And never mind the fact that people are typically in the military under contract to leave the situation that they're in may not even be an option. Yeah, there's a constant fear that you will be kicked out. Like that will hang over you for the rest of your life, right? So there's this constant fear of that, or, you know, we'll throw you in jail. Like there is the power game of control and trying to ensure you stay conformed, mm. right? I literally saw this happen. Like my ex came here to CSU. She had reported to her mental health professional in the Air Force that she was trans. Her professional outed her and she was given an other than honorable discharge, which means she does not qualify for the GI Bill. That is... It's awful. Yeah, such a painful experience. And I think it means, correct me if I'm wrong, but that it also limits access to the VA mm -hmm. um, when you have an other than honorable or dishonorable discharge. So that also is an enormous barrier. And then you tie that in with the mental health pieces that you talked about, Ben. And there's just layer on layer on layer of things that might prevent somebody from seeking support. This is powerful. I think we could talk for another three hours or three days or three weeks about all of the issues. I have one last question. And Alistair, I think it may be focused for you, but Ben, I would love to hear your thoughts too. I want to know what keeps you going every day. That's a big one in a very small package because what keeps me going is really my dog. <laughs> Honestly, he's a small little corgi dachshund mix, and he has been with me for about 10 years plus, about 12 years at this point. And he went through that abusive relationship with me. And so I kind of feel like he literally took the hits for me. So, and he was with me when I was sleeping in my car in the CSU parking lot, like these kind of things. And it's not easy not to have a toxic positivity thing, but I really have to work on his barks will scare me sometimes and I have to not take it out on him. And so it also teaches me to be kind to myself and be like, hey, you know, you're just scared and that's okay. And feel it, acknowledge it. Don't try to hide it or ignore it or fix it. And I think that's the biggest thing too, is just letting ourselves be okay with ourselves for a little while. Yeah, I love that. Ben, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think for me it's, the idea that we can change, uh, that we can grow, that there is alternatives to this violence. There is hope and peace. There is the ability to change. I mean, I was a very different person when I was in the military and 
I got out and I started to learn about my identities. I started to learn and reflect on my experiences in the military. And, you know, I've grown from those things. And I think I know that change is possible. I know that growth is possible. And I hope that, that we can all be a bit kinder to each other, be a bit kinder to ourselves. And instead of fight each other, fight for a better world. I love that. Alistair and Ben, thank you both so much for chatting with me about military sexual trauma and interpersonal violence in the military. It's a big topic and a really personal one, and one that we know impacts students at CSU. I appreciate you both sharing your experiences and your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to wrap up by talking about a few important resources available to survivors of MST and IPV. First, for veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs, also known as the VA, employs staff members who are focused on supporting survivors of military sexual trauma. As we heard, the VA is not always a trusted resource among veterans because it's bureaucratic, slow, and the services can sometimes feel invalidating. Still, the VA is often a starting place for veterans who need support. Another resource is the Department of Defense, which has a number of anonymous and free supports available for service members, veterans, and their families, friends, and loved ones. The first is called Safe Helpline, a toll-free number that can be reached worldwide, staffed by trained advocates. The advocates strive to maintain callers' anonymity so they can provide quality support without survivors worrying about where their call might go. And to emphasize this focus, Safe Helpline is also a free and anonymous app. The app has tools for countering the sometimes challenging internal narratives that many survivors experience, educational pages about military sexual trauma, self-assessments and goal trackers, and additional tools to support survivors, plus a lockable journaling section and a section for coloring. I really appreciated the guided meditations and visualizations and noticed that there is access to a chat feature if someone prefers to message with an advocate instead of speaking over the phone. Another helpful app is called Beyond MST, also created by the VA. Beyond MST has exercises, assessments, and educational pages to learn more about MST and its effects. For CSU students, the Adult Learner and Veteran Services Office is a great resource to connect with other veterans. ALVS really understands the way community is built in the military and helps foster strong connections on the CSU campus. They're also a good starting place if a student needs support connecting to the VA and veterans programs. An example of one of these programs is the on-campus resource VITAL, which stands for Veterans Integration to Academic Leadership, which is a partnership between universities and the VA that supports veterans transitioning to being students. Services include helping students to access mental health care and education about campus and community resources. And of course, the Women and Gender Advocacy Center is always here to support survivors of military sexual trauma. Whether someone is seeking an individual advocate, support groups to meet other survivors, or in need of campus and community resources to promote healing, we're here for service members and veterans. Lastly, if you want to learn more, The Invisible War is a documentary that covers military sexual trauma. And while it's a few years old, it gives historical and sociocultural context that expands on the things we talked about in this episode. You can find The Invisible War through our office's library on Amazon Prime and through HBO Max. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, 
or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot e-d-u. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.